This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 8th. Today, protests for George Floyd continue why it's still so hard to prosecute police, and who's left out of economic recovery. Would you mind saying what's on your side for It says, my cousin didn't get justice or a hashtag. Say their names. His name is Keston Lewis. He was 19. He was killed by police. And it's, it's just sad that this is happening. I, this is my son. My son is 14 years old. I have a seven-year-old also. I shouldn't be scared. I'm tired. Our family didn't get justice. Somebody needs to get justice, and it needs to stop moving forward. It just has to stop. There's no way. No peace! No peace! No peace! Over the weekend, protesters gathered in cities across the U.S. and around the world. Mass peaceful protests in London to condemn police violence Sunday. They marched for justice for George Floyd, for a change in policing, and for an end to systemic racism. In Seattle, police used stun grenades to try and break up a crowd after officers said that they were injured by people throwing rocks and bottles. In a lot of U.S. cities, police were more restrained. The police presence on Saturday doesn't look anything like it did earlier in the week. This has become similar to street festivals that we see elsewhere where the ice cream man's around, people are dancing and taking selfies and the like. Marissa Ling and Clarence Williams are reporters for The Post. On Saturday, they were at the demonstrations in Washington, D.C., the largest that the city has seen so far. There's still plenty of marching. There's still plenty of people who are here because they want their voices heard. But this is far more subdued in terms of confrontation from the protesters' perspective. There are far fewer officers in relation to the number of protesters. Um, They're not wearing riot gear. They're not carrying shields. They're not walking around with less than lethal weapons. It's a very different vibe. But I also think that after some of the brute force we saw used against the peaceful protesters, there's clearly been a shift in strategy in terms of the policing that we're seeing out here. Peace to revolution! I get scared if I'm pulled over. I'm worried if I'm going to lose my life. I've been pulled out guns on for no reason. Been told to get down. My brother's screaming, don't shoot my brother. 
I, I says I can't breathe, and then the front says Black Lives Matter. We won't stop until we get justice. Let this right here is from being unheard. Like, you know, we're crying out, like, please, like, just help us. Stop making it, people think that it's okay to kill us and that nothing will happen. For somebody to hold their knee down on someone's neck for that long. 8.46 is basically um, 8 minutes and 46 seconds how long George Floyd died. And think like, so what? On camera, knew he was on camera, knew somebody was watching. But that's how they feel about us. It's not a couple bad apples, there's a lot. And it goes unnoticed, it goes unpunished. And the things that they do are atrocious. The conflict between black folks or the struggle that black folks have gone through has been part of the original sin of the formation of this country. Any fair reading of history would say that. I think that as people of color, black folks specifically, have sought equal treatment. We saw what happened during the 50s and 60s during the civil rights movement. Shocking images of clashes between black folks and police and law enforcement are not new. The volume is different now because there are so many cameras out there and it's so blatant but this country has been shocked before the question is will there be any lasting impact from this from myself as a black man i'm waiting to see marissa lang and clarence williams report on dc for the post we talked to Alicia Harris, Tommy Polo, Ashley Fenwick, and Carmen Santana at the D.C. protests over the weekend. On Monday afternoon, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin appeared in court for the first time after being arrested for the killing of George Floyd. He's been charged with second and third degree murder, along with second degree manslaughter. The other officers on the scene of Floyd's death have also been charged with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. But now the question is, will those charges stick? There have been... Roughly 100 cops prosecuted for murder in the last 20 years. Of those, fewer than 10 have been convicted of murder. Paul Butler is a law professor at Georgetown and a former federal prosecutor. Maybe 20, 25 others were convicted of lower charges like manslaughter or negligent homicide. But the vast majority of cops who are accused of murder walk. They're either found not guilty by jurors or they have their charges dismissed by a judge. And why is that? Why do you have in the vast majority of cases that police officers end up not being convicted? These are difficult cases for prosecutors. Often the main witnesses for the prosecution are other cops. And sometimes they either don't cooperate with the prosecution because of the blue wall of silence, they're sympathetic to their fellow officer, or worse yet, they try to sabotage the case. We also know that the law is biased in favor of police officers. 
And the usual case in which a police officer is being prosecuted for using deadly force, her defense is self-defense. The Supreme Court, in a series of cases, have said when that's the defense, the jurors should look at it from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. What some critics have said is that slants the jurors in favor of the cop. That's one barrier to convictions in these cases. And frequently, jurors are sympathetic to police officers, and they think even if this cop made a mistake, he was just trying to do his job. Uh, And the other piece of that is police unions are extraordinarily powerful, and they're very resistant to reform. They're very resistant to any kind of accountability among their members. And because they have such power in the collective bargaining process, they've been able to win concessions. Like if there's a review of a police shooting, the cop gets to talk to a lawyer first. Uh, Sometimes there's what's called a cooling off period, where for a day or two, The officer doesn't have to talk to anybody, which critics would say uh, gives the cops a chance to get their story straight. So so I want to talk more about the charges that are brought against police officers and the decisions that go into deciding what those charges are going to be. What is the range of what we see police officers charged with after a killing or a shooting? And what is the difference between those charges and and, and how, how are they decided on? Prosecutors are the most powerful actors in our criminal legal process. They have more power than the judge to determine how a case comes out. And a large part of this power comes in their charging decision. A prosecutor can charge you with whatever crime the evidence reflects. She doesn't have to charge you with the most serious crime. It could be whatever she thinks is best in terms of getting a conviction. When police officers are investigated for use of deadly force. A prosecutor can charge a homicide crime. The lowest level would be negligent homicide, which means that the officer did not intend to kill you, but a reasonable person would have known that what she did would result in a death. Or manslaughter or murder, more serious charges, usually requiring proof of intent to kill. So murder is punished more severely than any other crime. So often when there is community outrage about a police shooting, people want to see murder charges. But in those cases, like the Floyd case, where murder requires proof of intent to kill, uh, that can be difficult for a prosecutor. How do you actually prove that? How can you say definitively what the intent of the officer was in that moment? Ironically, unlike the Floyd case, in most other police shootings, intent to kill isn't an issue. The officer testifies, yes, I used deadly force. Yes, I was trying to kill this person. And the defense is 
the use of force was reasonable. I used force in self-defense because otherwise he would have killed me or someone else. So one unusual part of the Floyd case is that intent to kill actually is an issue. What's most likely is the police officers who restrained Mr. Floyd will say that they did not intend to kill him. And they may even try to blame underlying medical conditions for Mr. Floyd's death. And what kind of evidence do you think that prosecutors will use in this case to try to establish that intent? Mr. Chauvin is charged with second-degree murder. There's a really unusual theory of the case. Minnesota has a felony murder provision for second-degree murder. This is a little inside baseball, but felony murder is a kind of made-up homicide charge. So if you can imagine an armed robber sticking a gun in someone's face and saying, give me all your money. If that person were to have a heart attack and die, under a felony murder theory, the robber would be guilty of murder, even though the death was an accident. So here, the prosecution's theory is that the officer was committing a felony, aggravated assault, and Mr. Floyd died as a consequence of that aggravated assault. So technically, all the prosecution has to prove here is that the officer intended to assault Mr. Floyd and a death happened as a consequence. So in this case, it seems like the circumstances are more in the favor of prosecutors than they usually are in terms of the chances of this prosecution actually resulting in a conviction of this police officer. We have video evidence that's unusually probative because it shows most of the encounter with Mr. Floyd. There have been videos in other police killings where even with those videos, jurors haven't convicted. Here, not just based on the police body cam video, which we haven't seen, but we can imagine is very incriminating because the police department in Minneapolis saw it and fired the four officers the next day. So it's unlikely that the body cam video contains anything that's exculpatory. From the videos made by passersby, uh, what we see is extremely incriminating. What's most revealing, and I think will help the prosecution's case, is the almost three minutes after one officer checked Mr. Floyd for a pulse, found none, and those cops continued to press his neck and back and legs into the ground for almost another three minutes. So that will be quite compelling evidence uh, for a jury that these officers cross the line from any legitimate attempt to try to restrain Mr. Floyd into something that the prosecutors are saying is murder. 
I'm curious about what your sense is of juries and where they tend to land on these kinds of cases and whether that's shifting. You know, I think that when we even look at the past week of protests and the people who have been showing up to protests around the country, and that group of people is much more diverse than it's ever been. And I wonder if you think that is starting to be reflected in juries at all, that that juries have a more nuanced sense of what the dynamics are at play here and are less sympathetic to police officers than they might have been five or 10 or 20 years ago. We have to remember that the jurors aren't going to be the protesters. The jurors are going to be 12 citizens from Minneapolis who will have sworn that they can be objective. Now, you don't want jurors who've never heard of this case because that would mean they're not living in the real world. But you do want jurors who say they can put what they've heard aside and render their judgment just based on the evidence that's presented in court. With that in mind, I do think that thanks to the movement for Black Lives and thanks to this shift in technology that happened around 2005. Around 2005, the majority of Americans had smartphones, which means that the majority of Americans were walking around with cameras in their purses and pockets. That could mean that folks have been educated about what African-Americans and Latinx people have been saying for decades, if not centuries, that the police frequently cross the line in our communities, that cops kill us and beat us up and arrest us in situations in which they wouldn't do that to white people. There might be people who five years ago wouldn't have believed that. Now, I think that there's been a reckoning. We saw in this past week that even in policing rallies to protest police brutality, we saw police brutality. So you'd hope the whole world knows when jurors are sent to deliberate, they're told to use their common sense and their experience. So we'll have to see whether all of the evidence of police violence that's been recorded and broadcast, how that impacts, especially white jurors, now. Paul Butler is a law professor at Georgetown University and a former federal prosecutor. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued.
the jobs numbers on Friday were a huge surprise, the biggest surprise of my career. Everyone expected that unemployment was going to surge, that we had had a lot more job losses in May. Instead, unemployment rate went down a little bit, and we found out that the nation actually had a net job gain of 2.5 million jobs added. I'm Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. President Trump loved it. Uh, He celebrated it. And by the way, what's happened to our country and what you now see has been happening is the greatest thing that can happen for race relations, for the African-American community, for the Asian-American, for the Hispanic-American community, for women, for everything. What's your plan? Because our country is so strong. And that's what my plan is. We're going to have the strongest economy in the world. We almost are there now. We had the strongest economy anywhere in the world. And now we're going to have an economy that's even stronger. Sir, how... Sir, how the stock market rallied after they saw this better than expected news. But if you dig a little bit deeper into the numbers, it's a little bit harder to be quite as celebratory. There's still over 20 million Americans who are out of work. And in particular, a lot of people were really pointing to the black unemployment rate, which actually went up a little bit in May, even as the white unemployment rate went down. Black and Hispanic Americans have been hit very hard by this and continue to have unemployment rates above 15%, which is incredibly high levels, way higher than the Great Recession. So it seems like President Trump is saying that this is his big plan for addressing racial injustice, which is basically to see the economy continue to improve and that eventually things will be booming and that will be for Black people, for Hispanic people, for Asian Americans, for everyone. But it would seem both from this most recent job report, but also from just the history of economics and how the economy has affected Black people, that that's not necessarily the case, that even when the economy is very good for the country— that you still see Black people suffering disproportionately. Unfortunately, that's true. Economists have long known that the unemployment rate for Blacks is usually twice that of whites, that Black workers earn a much smaller fraction, about 75 to 80 percent of what their white colleagues do. So we've all known about these inequalities and disparities, and they were present long before President Trump uh, came into office. But I think what really shocked me when I went back and looked at the data this week with my colleague Andrew Van Dam is actually the gap between the black and white wealth. It's as large in 2020 as it was in 1968. And do we see a difference when you factor in things like education or the part of the country that people are living in? Quick answer is not really. And that's what what scares a lot of people is that you would hope and you would think, you know, this mantra we have in the United States that, oh, if you just get a college education, that's the path to the middle class, get that law school or that uh, degree in medicine, and and you're going to be so well off. And in fact, at every education level, black wealth significantly lags that of whites. And one of the ones that really gets me is 
the typical black household that's headed by someone with a college degree, they still have less wealth than a white person with a high school degree. So getting that college degree just mm. didn't make it didn't make a significant difference in wealth terms. So why is that? Well, what are the factors at play here? One of the biggest issues is that wealth is passed from generation to generation. So it's really hard for any Black baby born in this country to make up the difference when the moment that that Black child is born, they already are at such a big disadvantage to most white children because the white children's parents may are much more likely, almost twice as likely to own a home, which gives a lot of middle class wealth in this nation. They're you know, much more likely to have investments in the stock market, you know, much more likely to have these trappings of wealth that they can help to pass on to their children, either by outright gifting them money or by um, you know, helping pay for college education or uh, helping them launch a business. We all know President Trump's story of getting some money from his father to help launch a business, which is a prime example of what happens. So then is this something that the government should or could be doing more about, a way of addressing the persistence of these disparities? This is a huge debate right now, particularly among the Democrats, particularly in Joe Biden's campaign. And two um, leading ideas of, of ways to potentially close this gap. Uh, one is reparations, the government paying money to families who are descendants of slaves in the United States. So, you know, gifting some money to help give some of that wealth back to African-Americans in this country. Another idea that probably has even more legs and has actually been tried, a variation of it has been tried in Maine, is something called baby bonds. And what that would do is it would give uh, lower income children, black or white, but um, it would help m quite a few uh, minority children. So give them like five thousand or ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars at birth. You know, lock it in a savings account that they can access when they're eighteen, hopefully for college or some other you know thing that would help really build their wealth long term. But the idea is to give them try to equalize at birth that disparity. So when you see what is happening with protests around the country and the fact that these are conversations about police brutality, but also the many ways in which systemic injustice affects Black people, do you feel like there, do you think there is evidence to suggest that this will result in some long-term economic improvements for Black Americans or more intentional action about how to address those disparities? I'm a hopeful person by nature, and I very much hope so. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to find ways in our own organizations to make that happen. So, for instance, is pay equal in your own organization among races and among genders? We can ask those hard questions of our managers and of our bosses. That's a, you know, an easy thing that anybody can do without even walking out into the streets. Another critical thing to watch, though, is really going to be what happens this summer. There's a lot of debate between Congress and the White House. Do we need more stimulus? You know, is the economy rebounding enough on its own or does it need another leg up? And I think it's critical to remember that Black and Hispanic Americans have seen far more job losses in this 
pandemic, and Black small businesses have been hit twice as hard by closures as white ones. And so at the end of the summer, even though there's a little bit of recovery starting to happen, most of those gains are going to white Americans. And we have to remember and ensure we do not leave Black and Hispanic Americans behind. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're on Twitter, share your thoughts about the stories on this episode with the hashtag Post Reports or send a DM to me. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.